0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Eat Weeds podcast. I've got a new domain for the podcast now. It's called eatweeds.f for Foxtrot, M for Mike. Eatweeds.fm. I'm going to be sounding a little bit distant in this interview because I'm actually up in Abruzzo in Italy, which I didn't expect to find myself, and I'm overlooking Forest at the moment, and I'm on a small holding. Let me tell you the story. Basically someone kept liking my posts on Instagram and I don't normally I just post stuff and I don't really engage that much. But I noticed this person and their tag was Forager in Italy. And so I went to their profile on Instagram, Forager in Italy, and then saw that there was a link to a kind of B and B, kind of Airbnb. Within a few hours, I'd seen this person liking my posts and then I went and booked to stay at their accommodation, which now has turned out to be quite a curious bit of serendipity and a wonderful little journey, not only into the fantastic region of Abruzzo, but to meet the fantastic Marta and her hubby or partner called Raf. I think he's called Raf. The reason why I think is because they're both Polish and I can understand Polish people but I can't actually speak their language and pronounce their names correctly. So Marta, it's wonderful to have you here. Thank you. This is completely unprompted. As with any of these shows, they're just unscripted. They're just riffed and it's just two people bonkers about plants and wild food talking that. Before we start, introduce who you are and how you ended up in Abruzzo in Italy and this fantastic little small holding making crazy wild food experiments.
1: I'm Marta. The surname is Jikowska. It's easier to pronounce for me than it is for Robin. We're both Polish and when we were 20-something we moved out from Poland to Ireland and then another decade later we decided that we've had enough of the weather in Ireland and we decided to, just, just on a whim, decided to booked some trips to Abruzzo that Rafael found by accident on Google. It was just very green and had the lakes and the forests, which is what I wanted. And then we fell in love and a year later we came to buy a house and another couple of months later we brought our dogs, kids, mother-in-laws, cats, pianos and everything. And here we are in Abruzzo, in a place that again came by coincidence. But we just fell in love with the views and the fact that it's completely wild and empty. And like I said, I really missed forests from Poland and the lakes as well. And we just have it all here. Plus we have the mountains and the seaside and nature is just crazy. So it's like a paradise here. You yeah. found out it's a slice of paradise.
0: I have to say, having walked yesterday through some of the forests and drove through some of the forest, it is... Absolutely extraordinary. It is most probably one of the greenest parts of Europe I think I've yeah. actually been in.
1: Yeah, it is, it is. It's Abruzzo is called the green lung or the green heart of Europe. It has uh, the biggest surface of national parks. In, I think in Italy definitely, probably also in any of the European countries for one region. And it's extremely green. And also we have very dramatic landscape. So from where we're at about 700 metres above sea level. You need less than an hour to be maybe 2,000 meters up and less than an hour to be at the sea level at the beach. So we very often say, and really this is not exaggeration, that on the Christmas day we go down to the seaside and we walk in short sleeve and have ice cream. And then for the 26th, which in Ireland was called Stephen's Day, we just drive up to the mountains and we need coats and everything is covered in snow and we walk in the snow. And it's all day after day and we're in the middle of it. What's not to make?
0: Absolutely. <laughs> no, the whole, the range of climate, like you say, is absolutely extraordinary within such a short space of time. It is a forager's heaven. I have to say, I'm very envious of you. What's <laughs> uh, Compared to Britain, England, sorry. <laughs> there's a lot of Scottish foragers, there's a lot of Welsh foragers, there's a lot of Irish It's Not Britain. I'm from England. So I live in England. I live in Devon. So... Yeah, even compared to Devon, which is considered like God's own for England. This is off the charts extraordinary. And I think I heard or read when I was checking out the area that there were 4,000 species of wildflowers.
1: That could be right. I'm not very good with precise numbers like that, but I know the biodiversity here is absolutely extraordinary. And because this region was quite isolated in terms of accessibility also from the more, let's call the more civilized parts of Italy. It retained this primal, unchanged nature. You can go still to the forest that you can see there's not been a person in for probably decades, trees are fallen, rotting away. You can, if it's the dusk time, you can see wild animals just passing by, deer or roe deer. People, of course, are completely scared of wolves and wild boar that are very common here. But I've never in- encountered any of them in the forest. I think it's no. the mutual respect thing. If you hear noises, you just you just don't go that way, and that's it. Or maybe I was just lucky. But anyways, wildlife is a part of life here in every respect. Not only animals, foxes passing in front of the house, and badgers and porcupines even, but the the plants—they're just everywhere. Absolutely everywhere. And because of the landscape, we can have very long seasons of all the seasonal edible plants. So the acacia or black locust, as you call it, can start blooming at the round sea level, let's say, I don't know, sometime in April. Where we are, it'd be the end of the month. And if you drive another 10 minutes up, we have another extra month. So normally something that would last maybe two, three weeks, we have about two and a half months of it.
0: Yeah, now... I think that was really, I I noticed that because for listeners, one thing that, that Marta and Rath do is that they cook up, if you stay in their apartment, they cook up wild food meals for you. And they both did a meal for my partner, Zilla, and myself a couple of days ago, and I asked for black locust. And where I'd seen it, it was going over, and then you said you just went up to... Torricella Torricella and there it is yeah bloom and healthy so yeah, yeah you it is an extraordinary ecosystem i have to say but as with anyone on the show everyone has stories and you've got an extraordinary story one you're old enough to be born in soviet when poland mm-hmm. was under soviet control
1: yes i'm from the 1980 so i got the first decade of my life was still under the Soviet
0: rule, let's say, the communist time. And my understanding is that back in those days, wild food was part of daily life.
1: I think it was, especially in the countryside. I'm born and raised city girl, but my grandparents had an allotment like many people used to in Poland in these times. And I remember quite a lot of food that my grandmother would have introduced me to. Maybe I wasn't extremely keen on it as a kid. Dandelion and young nettle salad maybe is not the perfect choice for someone who's seven or eight years old. But I remember her making it for us with some hard boiled egg and chopped. And she was telling me that this is the food that uh, in her childhood, that's what you'd have. And especially the children, because it's so good for you. It's so full of vitamins and all the micro elements that you need so badly in the spring. And it's not like you could have gone to a supermarket or a pharmacy. She was born in the 20s of the 20th century, 1923, I think she was born. So for her and for her generation, it was an obvious part of life that people would just use whatever was available instead of having to buy it. So I remember her drying herbs, drying even the vegetables that she had surplus of. She was preserving a lot of things. She was even, I remember, drying carrots and Salariac and pars- parsley roots, and I absolutely love just... Parsley roots? Yeah, parsley root. It's a vegetable, vegetable that's quite, root vegetable, quite popular in Poland. I've never seen it used outside of there. Okay. But dried is really sweet, and I remember munching on these things as much as dried forest mushrooms, which she was always shouting at me about because she said, I can't have raw mushrooms, but we were having handfuls throughout the winter and in the spring and in the summer because there were always jars full of dried forest mushrooms in every Polish home back then. And they were really nice. We didn't see it as anything extraordinary. It was just a part of life. Going blueberry picking in the forest or bilberry, I think it's actually the proper name. The forest mushrooms, the raspberries, whatever was growing in the wild or whatever was not claimed, claimed by somebody. So also as kids in the city nicking a plum here or there or climbing any walnut tree that there was. Still, back then in the cities, yeah, we still had trees. It's nearly finished now. It's all concrete. But back then, yeah, that's why I still climb trees. I'm over 40 and I've no problem and I love
0: climbing trees. I wouldn't have a problem with that because when I was in Burma with Zilla, we went out into the forest with some forest people and I saw this elderly woman who was in her 70s at the top of a bloody great tree Picking tree beans, uh-huh. which we then ate. Which, But she was like, yeah, in her 70s. And it's, nature is a gym, isn't it? You don't actually need to get go it? pay to go to the gym. It's you know? just get out of nature and use your body weight with trees. Climbing a tree is pulling... Dump.
1: Yeah, it's wow. it's, uh, it's better than yoga. You have to do your stretching. You have to put your leg up your chin. And sometimes you end up hanging on your arms or just one leg. And maybe having to, whatever... Use your leg just not to fall down. And sometimes you do fall. Sometimes you get scratched, yes. But we're not that delicate as beings. It's not like you get broken. Sure. Of course, it raises eyebrows because a crazy old woman (laughs) climbing a tree. But to be honest, I've never cared. Yeah, Yeah. I just enjoy it. And I think that's it. I don't really care if
0: anybody thinks it's weird or not. Good, good. It's important not to. So what I want to do is... I'm sitting in front of a load of jars here with Marta and the reason I asked her to pull them out is that everyone does pickles okay everyone does pickles and preserves and post them on Instagram etc and the problem with Instagram is something might look pretty but might actually taste disgusting so it's a bit of an illusion Instagram and I'm not really a huge fan of yeah I don't swipe and like stuff I'd rather be creating and making which is what you do and you shared some of your pickles with Zilla and myself recently, and it was just like, cripes. These are just like, yeah, they're just on a different scale to what I've experienced back home in England from many pickle makers, even authors of pickle books, I have to say. <laughs> and uh, you just got a, a bit of an enchantment in your fingers, I suspect, and in the cooking stove, so we've got a load of jars here and I asked Martha to pull them out because every jar has a story. And so we're just going to go through it. I don't know whether we're going to be able to get through all of them. Pull a jar out, Martha, and tell us the story behind it because I've asked you to have pickles and preserves that have something wildish in them. Yeah. To
1: be honest, nearly all of the jars that I make and I make a couple of hundreds a year, They, I don't buy anything other than spices to make them. I think it's a bit pointless buying vegetable or fruit to then turn it into preserves because you can just go to a shop and buy your jam if you want. I only use fruit that nobody wants, so there's plenty of abandoned houses and ruins, and there's plenty of self-seeded fruit trees everywhere here in my area. So all I do is just I have a bucket always in my in my car, and if we're walking, even in our village, it's usually very easy to fill a couple of buckets. Wherever you stop, sometimes you're just driving past and you can see somewhere a couple of meters away from the road or a side road. Abruzzo is mostly made of side roads. You can see a massive cherry tree absolutely loaded with fruit. And all it needs is just someone go in there and picking it, maybe climbing a bit of a tree. And that's what I do. So I don't buy any of the ingredients, like I said, other than spices, salt, things like that, preserving stuff. Let's start with the pickled cherries, because this is one of my favorite kind of preserves that I started making a while ago. It came about because I got fed up with pitting cherries. Mm -hmm. I have a special device brought from Poland that is very handy for pitting cherries. But the wild kind is really tiny. So the pickled cherries, the little wild things, after a couple of buckets that you have to pit and turn into jams of the bigger kind, the abandoned trees that were some sort of cultivated varieties, have loads and loads of tiny little things. That may be half the size of a commercial cherry, and they'd really be nearly impossible to pit. One day, I just said, "Flip it! I need to find a way to preserve them whole, stem and then the pit and the flesh all in." And I found in many one of the many cookery books that I have in my library. I found this book that I inherited after my grandmother from the sixties, the old style Polish preserves. Brilliant! And we have a history of preserving fruit in sweet and sour light marinade it used to be a practice in poland many years ago then it went out of fashion maybe plums would have stayed but i found many recipes for different kinds of fruit so i wanted to give it a go with the whole wild cherries and it's an absolute delight i think they're tiny little nibbles that you can just munch on you can add them to your whatever cheese board. they look beautiful because it's just tiny little cherry with a stem on.
0: What did you serve, serveiller Make
1: that was goats, yeah, that was goat's cheese. I also make cheeses because we have a few goats, so there was a goat's cheese that was slightly mature a couple of weeks mature, and you had it with one of them wild cherries. there was also a jam made of wild or bewildered grapes, yeah, an abandoned vineyard. And there was also a pickled apple there.
0: No, that was it. They were great. They were really great. I love those.
1: Yeah, well, I, I think they're very sort of unique, interesting flavor, and they really are very easy to make. So. That's the story of laziness okay. <laughs> with pickled cherries.
0: Yeah, I don't have a problem with laziness. So I think it's a completely underrated profession. Being lazy.
1: Uh-huh. No, I'm generally not lazy. Oh, but, I know you're. Not, I know. But this is, all of these things come when you just really get fed up. Because honestly, pitting by hand oh, totally. two, 50 fifteen-liter buckets of cherries will just will just it. get you. Am I really a masochist? Am I really going to go on with that? Or can
0: I find a better way? Yeah, I still think laziness is a good profession. No, I still You're have to discover that. it. <laughs> no, you haven't. I know you haven't. Because if you actually come and stay in Martha and Rafa continually working, because small holdings require work. and You've got goats to milk and land to prepare, etc., etc. But yeah, I agree. I think why make, why give yourself extra work like with the cherries, you pickle them whole. You're not yeah. pitting them. Pitting them is going to be a ball ache to do. So you do it the way you've done it, which, as you've just said, feeds back to an ancient, not an ancient practice, but, but an old yeah,
1: practice. once upon a time practice. Yeah. And uh, I've also the same thing. The same story happened with wild apples. Again, a neighbour from our village called me and asked if I want some windfalls because they have two or three very old apple trees that the guys. 70-something, and he said his parents planted the trees and they were never pruned. So they produce massive, really tiny apples, but they're from here, which means even windfalls are very healthy. So I went with a bucket, hoping for the buckets. I had to come back two or three times, filling up two or three buckets at a time. So I ended up with half a basement full of buckets of tiny little apples. And normally i just... I just cleaned them and, uh, without peeling, but just getting the cores removed. And I would just stew them with sugar and cinnamon or some mixed spice for like, pie fillings, for cake fillings. And again, I got fed up at some stage. And I thought, OK, I, I could pickle cherries. Why not pickle the smallest of the apples? They were really healthy. The only thing you have to be sure of when you pickle things whole is that they're healthy, that they probably have nothing inside, no worries. So I just picked another, maybe two buckets of the smallest of them. And again, they don't need any particular workload. You just put cleaned fruit in a jar, put over pickling liquid and sterilize them in the oven and that's it. And they will last you four or five years easily.
0: Putting the jars with the fruit and the liquid in the oven. To...
1: The proper, the old school sterilization requires boiling the jars. Sure. But because I use a lot of recycled jars, yeah. they're never the same height and it's always a pain or or you end up having to have 10 different pots, which is not practical. So, <laughs> Like Robin has noticed I'm quite a practical person, so I saw it in the oven. Very. They can stand all together in one level, and the only thing I have to do is fish out the smaller ones a bit earlier, and that's it. Okay. So yeah, like that you can do your whole cherries, whole baby apples. I've also done quince. We're going to talk about quince in a minute because that's my very favorite wild fruit here. The quince, you can't do whole, but you can just do it peeled in wedges, so it's still good. I've done Mirabella plums. I'm not sure how... It's a cherry plum, I think you said the name in English was, or did I say it? No, you said... It's a like tiny little wild plum that's one of the first ones to be ready, and it's pulpy, but you can also, because you don't literally cook anything, you can also just put a, a cling liquid over them. They will be a bit mushy inside, not like the ones that we pickle in the pool and very late ones, but they're still very tasty. And again, no work. You just put clean fruit in a jar, pour your liquid, li- li- pickling liquid or your syrup on top. Hot. God. Hot, yeah. And then you just close them, put them in the oven, sterilize for 20 minutes or more if they're in large jars, and that's it. And wow. I can tell you 100%, if you're using new lids, they will last you five years easily in a basement. And I also don't use any artificial preservatives, obviously, in the jars. So it's all sugar or vinegar or spices. Some leaves as well. That is, again, an old Polish practice that just increases the life of lactoferment.
0: You mentioned three leaves that well, then, would put in her ferments. Is that right? Yeah. Like sour cream.
1: Uh, sauerkraut, no, for sauerkraut we use different things that also have these antifungal properties. But yeah. for uh, sour gherkins, it's one of the okay. beloved uh, ferment of all times in Poland. So, sour gherkins, lacto fermented gherkins, yeah. my grandmother would always put a leaf of oak, a leaf of blackcurrant, and a leaf of cherry tree. Okay. Uh, all three, and also you have some horseradish root and dill seeds or dill flower heads Fantastic. and garlic. So when you then look at the profile of each of these plants, especially the tree leaves, it turns out that each of them has some sort of preserving qualities, or it has some tannins like like oak, which helps with the preservation. And uh, the cherry as well, I think, has some tannins, if I remember checking. That would have to be a sour cherry. Not the sweet cherry, though. Yeah. And then the blackcurrant, I don't know, was it just for flavour or not, but... Definitely, she was always very strict about it that you have to put but one leaf fact, of each. Currant, not
0: bramble.
1: No, blackcurrant Blackcurrant, Black currant, sour cherry, and an oak tree. She actually had planted each of these things in her allotment, especially for the purpose. Oh, <laughs> and I made sure that the gherkins were crispy. And they can you don't sterilize lacto-fermented gherkins. You just close them, the lid after the rapid fermentation is finished, and they can stay in the basement again for a couple of years. They just become more and more sour, but they should never get soggy or squishy. Wow. If they're done well, just the acid, the lactic acid, just preserves them.
0: Yeah, I have to say, Marta has this. Uh, I call it like a, almost like a root cellar. It's not a root cellar. It's a. I I don't know what did we use as a larder? I suppose it's in your basement. Yeah, the foundations of the house, so it's cool, consistent, cool. I would imagine, and uh, this just shelves and shelves of your jars i'm known as being a bit of a heretic in in foraging because i've got this kind of oh you don't need more than three jars and there you are in your cities and your, your entire kitchen's got 50 jars of i don't know blackberry jam or something and uh, but coming here i have to say i've slightly softened my approach on that <laughs> because what i'm seeing with you and raf and your children's lifestyle is that This isn't, this is actually food. I know everyone does it for food to eat, but this is almost out of a necessity in the set. And the reason I say that is because you told me a story about when lockdown happened with the COVID, that you were absolutely fine for months because you already had the preserves and the stores there.
1: Yeah, we're coming back again from the idea that we came here to just enjoy what's around us. And try and minimize all the shopping and buying things if you don't need to. And I personally absolutely hate food waste. So if the food is around and it's for free and it's the best you can get it, because if it grows here, that means it should be here. You pick it the best it is when you touch it and you know that it's the best, not somebody else decides that. Why not preserve it? Why not to keep it for the time when this particular ingredient is not available? So obviously, yeah, we're... I was making hundreds of jars from day one we came here because I just could see that it's everywhere. And if I don't pick it, it just falls down on the ground. Oh. Obviously, here, something's going to eat it, but it's food. Yeah. All you need is time and a bit of knowledge and some effort. And yeah, we had these questions a lot from Poland, from Ireland, from our families. Oh, are you OK? Are you OK? Do you have anything to eat? Do you want us to send you some like
0: food? No, I do have to say, you are... Wow. you. It, if people come and stay at your Airbnb or B&B, don't expect that, that they can just nip down the road to the local no, town. No. Because there isn't. There bad. is nothing Poisonous here. 10-minute drive to the local town. Yeah. It's and even, not, then, yeah. even then, all i found is a place to get coffee. Yeah. And the bakery. I've found anything else. There is a
1: convenience store usually in most of the little towns. We used to have one, but... Uh, The woman was over 70, and she was running it alone, so she just gave up. It was handy while it was here, but still,
0: I don't see much of a difference since it's not been here. Yeah, but the point I'm making is that convenience is not... No, no.
1: I mean, for me, it's very convenient because the food literally grows everywhere nonstop. Whatever greens you want, you just need to go out and just go across the road, and there's always something edible whatever the time of the year, unless it's covered
0: in snow, maybe. Okay, so let's bring in, come back to that, because you've got, just literally, I'm just turning around looking up the road, you've got some old deers living up the road there. Yeah. Because I have to say, again, in this region, all the young people have disappeared and gone into the cities or wherever else. The north of Italy or abroad, yeah. yeah. But, so all, the only people really around, there's a few people in the middle age, but most people are really old. Yes. And, oh, and you said that, and I was really surprised about this because you said that the old people up the road literally, they live and have lived for decades on pasta and tomato sauce as their yes. daily. Staple. <laughs> yes. That and that being it, and that kind of wobbled my brain a bit because I've got this fancy about Italy. Slow food movement came from here, not here. Every night <laughs> not here.
1: <laughs> no, I don't. I, I don't want to say about all of. A lot of Abruzzo because living in the mountains is very different here than living at the seaside. It's a stupid half an hour's drive, but it's a completely different world. Sure, These are all these remote tiny villages full of old people. And everybody thinks, and rightly so, I think that it's like the end of the world. They've been here for generations. And yeah, most of the people that we know that are old, There's not been a day of their life and they can be nearing 90 or over 90 where they've not had a pasta with tomato sauce in the middle of the day. And the reason is because most of these people were growing their own grains. They still grow their own tomatoes because tomatoes here grow fantastic. So that was the basic stuff that they always had. They would make hundreds of liters of tomato sauce a year. And the flour was here because they had the grains so that's it and then the cheese on top of course they would have their own cheese because they would have sheep we're in the mountains so everyone here had sheep if you wanted to go fancy everyone had some chickens and the pig so they had their own pancetta or guanciale they had their own cheeses they had their own eggs they had some milk you didn't really need to go shopping for much when you were living in here. And the old people still live the same way. They would have what, they ha- what grow what's grown in their veggie patch and the eggs. They can have a frittata with whatever is in season from their veggie patch every day. They don't get bored of it because, you know, it's accessible and it's theirs. They know it's good and that's it.
0: No fancy yeah. food here. This is one of the reasons I love traveling is that I, I dip into cultures that are not my culture. And my brain, again, wobbles because I realised, and I think from my own journey with foraging, I went into just recording my own uses and then I ended up consulting for some funky chefs and the kind of the art chef community, mm-hmm. you know, so Michelin people, which the regular Joanna and John is not going to be able to make when they come back from 12 hours working. And so now I'm really back into appreciating the simplicity of wild food as done by country communities. Yeah. But what I found fascinating here is that not many of the old people have foraged.
1: No, actually, I was hoping to be able to learn a lot from them. And I've been asking around, there are a few plants that they've taught me, so there is Butchers' broom, that is a plant known in England, but I don't think it's known as a, as an edible. Young shoots of this plant are harvested and they, uh, they boiled in a vinegar, salt water solution and then they dried very well and they preserved with olive oil. Again, free food, olive oil, everyone here would have their own. So obviously it was a cheap way to, to preserve them. Vinegar as well. Everybody here used to make their own wine. If it goes bad because it doesn't have the
0: sulfates. So what else we got? We got
1: uh, we've had some uh, we've vegetable pickles Georgian. as well, yeah, and the Georgian sauce. Oh yeah, tell us
0: about this Georgian so sauce. the Georgia. So the Georgia just because we have a lot of American listeners and they most probably thinking we're talking Georgia, the American no. state. We're not No, about we're talking Georgia, the
1: Caucasian region of Europe, yeah. one of the countries beside Armenia and there. This cuisine is absolutely fascinating. Georgian in particular, for us, uh, is closer to our hearts in Poland because together with the Vietnamese cuisine, the Georgian restaurants or eateries started popping up in the early 90s when we could open, as a country in Poland, yeah. when, when we could open the borders eventually after the change of systems. Gemari is a Georgian sauce. The base of this sauce are unripe, sour little plums. What I found here, and it was the first idea that I can use here, were the Mirabella plums. They're like okay. yeah, yeah. one of the first little red or yellow plums that are quite sour. and They're just really abundant and they have a really short time frame to pick, about a week. After that, they just they just really don't taste any nice. I mean, they get sweeter, but they're all mushy. So this sauce is basically a puree of sour plums with quite a lot of herbs, again, There are many different recipes. I just used whatever was growing around the house or whatever I had in the kitchen. So there's savory, summer savory I have that gives it a really nice peppery, bitter flavor. There's some mint, there's some wild oregano, there's some thyme, there's some timus serpillum that I have no idea what it is in English. So the sort of wild thyme that grows in the south. And some chilies. I don't know if chilies are a need in the original recipes, but because we always have surplus of our homegrown chilies and I do the spice, so I just added them together. These
0: are localized variants
1: of It's just, let's say this is my variety and obviously I didn't write it down yet, but I will write it down. The important thing is that it's quite sour with a hint of sweetness, herby and a bit spicy. And it goes fantastic with any cheeses, with any cold meats. You can add it to whatever salad to just to just yeah.
0: add a bit of so extra this flavor. Is, to. This Georgian thing is not a pickle, is it? It's a preserve. It's a preserve. Yeah. yeah so, so you're cooking the fruit. This was all cooked. Yes. Right.
1: Yes. For the pickles, I don't cook all the fruit or the vegetables. Sure. What you do is usually you pour over the pickling liquid hot, yeah, nice. then yeah then depends obviously what it is for the fruits, you can go and sterilize them straight away because otherwise they get mushy sure. with the likes of courgettes, purslane, uh yeah. charred stems whatever other crispy bits that you can yeah. find in the wild as well whatever is stem right. so
0: just Yeah. to clarify that the pickles are uncooked basically whereas the preserves yeah you're, you're, they're cooked yeah. Cook. it's like a jam
1: yeah it's jam. like a jam just with different yeah. ingredients yeah. out it yeah. If you omitted all the herbs and the salt and the chili, then you just have like a plum sauce. That, yeah. That's it. Yeah. So yeah, that's that's basically there's another this like vinegar pickling and lactofermentation as well. Because you can lactoferment little apples, for example. That's a very old practice that was in Poland, in Lithuania as well. I have a book from the late eighteenth century. Wow. Reprint obviously, with all these original recipes, and there are of fermented apples in there that you would do in a massive yeah in massive wooden containers
0: for people to find out about your foraging activities so you forager foraging initially. so just tell people and there'll be links in the show notes anyway and on the eatweeds.fm podcast website just tell people how to get a hold of you what's your handle on social media uh,
1: I have a page on Instagram and on Facebook on both these media you can find me at Forager in Italy. I'm going to come up. I did, this is the only profile with this address, as far
0: as I can see. Okay. And um, people want to come and visit you in Abruzzo and stay and go on foraging walks with you? How do they...
1: You can... Well, for foraging walks, if you're ever in Abruzzo, even not staying at ours, you can always contact me through, the, through Forager in Italy. Yeah. There's my phone number there as well. For the rental itself the address is Ilmonte Farmhouse that's I L M O N T E Farmhouse
0: yeah and Ilmonte is two words in the
1: in, social- in the address in social media it's just one one yeah. word and we're also on airbnb and booking.com if you wanted to if you wanted to book through them website but yeah the easiest thing is to get in touch and see if we have availability and you can stay with us we can cook wild for you you can come go foraging with me you can if you're here in the autumn, we can you can give me a hand with all these preserves that I have to go through all this fruit and vegetable waiting to be processed. I try to take people out mushrooming as well.
0: Great, thank you so much. Thank and you. And yeah, show notes at EatWeeds.fm. It'll be the title of the show will be Foraging in Italy. Okay. There you go.
1: Okay. <laughs>
0: thank you very much, Robin. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.